And we're so glad that you, everyone here could be at Sovereign Grace. Are y'all happy to be in the house of the Lord? Amen. Has it been a good time of worship so far to be in His presence? Amen. Amen. Well, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. Well, we'll continue in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 as we have been hearing much from our Lord. Well, when did we start, Matthew? It was last summer? Sometime? It's been last summer? And uh, we have worked our way through little by little each Sunday as the Lord directs and, and through His grace, He speaks to us each and every, every Sunday. And I've, I'm always amazed that when we go through Scripture this way, um, every time that we read a certain passage for a certain week, it is timely. And we don't really plan the topic. God plans the topic because it's His Word. Amen? Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. If you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. These are the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray. Dear God, we pause at this point of our worship today, and we just ask, Lord, that you would speak directly to us. These are the words of your Son, Jesus himself who is warning the citizens of his kingdom to be careful that there will be false prophets who claim to be messengers directly from you. And God, you are giving us as your people a responsibility to be aware and discerning to watch for false teaching. I pray, God, that you would protect us from such error, that you would protect us from these ravenous wolves. But God, that you would give us grace by giving us insight, but giving us understanding of what the true gospel is so that we could clearly see what the false gospel is. Lord, let this time be for your glory. If we have failed you by going after false teaching, I pray God for your grace and your forgiveness that you would cause us to see the truth of your word. Lord, this time is for you. Please speak. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. God bless you. How many of us in this room have gardens that we protect from invasive pests? You know, garden season is just around the corner, right? How many... You work and you slave and you dig and you prune and you wish to have a beautiful garden, whether it be a flower bed of beautiful blooms or a garden bed full of produce to feed your family. That's a lot of effort. And whenever we do put in gardens, we want to protect what we have. 
Would you agree? The last thing I want is to put in a garden and then Bambi show up and eat the fruit of my labor, right? As much as beautiful as deer are, they are pests when it comes to our gardens. Would you agree? Or rabbits or any other critter that wants to get into your garden and eat the fruit of your labor. Although the winter months are still with us, it's not going to be long before the true gardeners are going to begin to plant their early spring crops. Are you already planning for that? You know, you got to put your peas in the ground here in about two or three weeks, otherwise they're not going to produce. Late February is the time to produce the peas. So real gardeners are already getting set for tilling the ground. When you look at the home improvement stores right now, When you go to the garden center, what are they starting to put out? They've got their seeds. They're going to start putting out their fertilizers. They're probably going to have some tools that you want to, you know, covet. They're going to have some fencing. Anything that you might need for your garden, it's here. And so the pests that we fight back, let's think about what what we are fighting against when it comes to our gardens. These, These pests range from invasive insects, Right, that like to eat our fruit, you know, like ladybugs, grasshoppers, beetles, June bugs. Oh, I hate June bugs. Right. Even worse, during garden season, we're going to see invasive critters like rabbits and deer. Anything else that want to come in and eat our garden? So the prudent gardener is going to do all that's necessary to keep the garden safe. Would you agree? If you're a prudent gardener, you're going to do everything you need to do. That means building fences around or putting up chicken wire or maybe putting out that smelly deer repellent, right? That wards off all the critters. We now come to a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this beginning of verse 15 and following, I'm saying as the beginning of the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount that we have been looking at so faithfully since last fall. Verses, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel presents this wonderful teaching from Jesus. And if we remember, the focus of the Sermon on the Mount is what does the kingdom of heaven look like? And so now Jesus is tying up the package real nice and pretty and Okay, I've given you the beauty of the kingdom of heaven. Now let me give you some practical cautions for how to protect the beauty that I'm giving you. Jesus shifts his focus to now protection, protecting what is most valuable, the most valuable treasure of all, the kingdom of heaven. He has granted the kingdom of heaven He has established this kingdom on earth and we are given the privilege as citizens to be a part of the kingdom. And likewise, Jesus is now giving us words of caution. You have a responsibility to protect the kingdom. Jesus shifts his focus here. That we're to protect the valuable treasure that only a few will find. Remember our sermon text last week? Uh, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus talks about the narrow gate and the wide gate. The narrow gate, only a few will find. The wide gate is where everybody goes and it leads to destruction. We had a wonderful time Friday night digging even deeper into that truth. 
Christians who feel like they have entered into the kingdom say, yes, I entered through a narrow gate, but they think once they come through the narrow gate, everything is wide and open and glorious and easy. They've actually walked through into the path of destruction that way. But the narrow gate and the narrow way, the reason it's narrow is because the treasure of heaven is precious and very few will find it. And this is why Jesus here in these final verses of chapter 7, he's giving us very important information here, very important caution to protect what is precious. Jesus made the important point here of how, how valuable the kingdom of heaven is and how this entry in the kingdom is only for those who are granted entry and they're only granted possession through citizenship. And so the final verses here of chapter 7 are, are going to drive home the point that not only will God the Father protect what he cherishes the most, but he's going to give responsibility to the citizens of the kingdom to do the same. These are these words for us. This, these are the words that Jesus has for us. So what is Jesus saying to us beginning here in verse 15? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These are words for us if we are citizens of the kingdom. Jesus once again makes a point here, a very strong point about the religious elite who feign glorious religious piety. Right? Throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, from time to time, he'll bring out uh, messages and warnings against the religious elite. The religious power that they crave, not for God's glory, but for their own glory. That is what causes us to see who is a false teacher. These religious power-hungry people. And Jesus means by the false prophets here in verse 15, exactly what the Mosaic law tells us about a false prophet. If you want to flip over, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. We're going to see the words of Moses himself cautioning uh, the children of Israel against false prophets. So from the very beginning of God calling his people, there was this warning and, and a caution against false prophets. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Now that's interesting. If a dreamer of dreams, a prophet, tells you something, and it actually comes to pass, we would assume that there must be some credibility there, wouldn't we? But let's keep reading. <laughs> and if he says... Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But verse five, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from 
your midst. That's strong language from Moses. Cautioning the people of God. There will be prophets. There will be charlatans who will come and speak eloquent words and actually perform amazing acts of miracles, but they will then try to lead you to worship false gods. He's saying, what do we do? Number one, you don't listen to them. Number two, you purge them from your midst. God mentions no words here. And Jesus is picking up the same idea here at the end of his sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Now, there's further descriptions of a false prophet that we can see in Scripture. Flip over, if you wish, over to 2 Peter uh, chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 also warns us here, actually carrying over the same theme of Moses. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. You see, even Peter is cautioning the church. The the deception of the false prophets has not gone away. And these false prophets, here's how we recognize them. As we see here in 2 Peter chapter 2 and also Deuteronomy chapter 13, false prophets are going to secretly bring destructive heresies. It's going to be very subtle. But they're going to deny Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. They're going to deny that. But the other sign of a false prophet are those who fall away and follow their sensuous words. What does it mean to be sensuous? Very appealing, very attractive, very alluring. And many people are going to fall away with them. They're going to be caught up in the emotional poetry, perhaps, or or the charismatic entertainment of a false prophet, and they're going to follow them down a road of destruction. Let's stop and think about this. Who else was also sensual? If we think about the Garden of Eden, the serpent himself was very alluring and very attractive. And the greed of these false prophets That'll actually become evident because a false prophet will eventually be revealed as someone who is in it for the money or for their own glory and their fame. So how to summarize what Jesus means here? What is Jesus saying here about false prophets in Matthew 7, verse 15? In his time, there were Pharisees and religious elites who knew it all. It hasn't changed, has it? We've got church folks who know it all, don't we? right? Further, there were, at this time of of ancient history there, it was not uncommon to see itinerant preachers or itinerant teachers who would travel from village to village and city to city, uh, and, and, and they would make their living by teaching in these different places whatever the people wanted to hear or whatever the people wanted to pay for. So you had a traveling teacher, a traveling preacher 
who would go from village to village and, and, and city to city, and, and whatever the people wanted to hear, somehow the charlatan could pick up on their needs and, and teach them exactly what they were wanting. And buddy, the cash flowed. Very common in that day, right? What these itinerant teachers and preachers were doing these wandering charlatans, <laughs> they were very eloquent. Their rhetoric was persuasive. And they proclaimed the easy path. They proclaimed the wide gates. That's what it was. And so Jesus here in chapter 7 makes a dire warning to ward off the false prophets and the false teachers who are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's going to happen. But when they come into the kingdom of heaven, they're not coming in by way of Christ. They're not coming in through the narrow gates. And these thieves are going to steal the souls of the faithful by speaking eloquently and with charm. And their messages were easy to hear and their messages would be easy to follow, but their purpose would bring destruction to the kingdom, would bring destruction to the citizens this garden, if you will, this return to the glorious garden of Eden, this kingdom of heaven, God's glory would be tainted. And Jesus is cautioning here, don't let it happen. So now Jesus begins to instruct his disciples on how to recognize these charlatans who are going to steal into the kingdom. Jesus does this by illustrations of fruit in a garden. Let's think about this. As we come to verse 16, let's look here at verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? What is Jesus teaching here? I think the first thing we need to be cautious about, let's figure out what Jesus is not teaching here. Okay? While it is biblical to always test the spirits, this is what... John's first epistle tells us, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. It's biblical. But I'm going to ask the question, does Jesus imply here in verse 16 that every authority and every teacher without exception be under scrutiny all the time? I'm going to say no. Now, there is wisdom, there is discernment, that's whatever I'm preaching here, please don't take what I'm saying at face value. Study it as well. Listen to the word of God. We, we have an open dialogue in this church. Amen? Friday, night's a gr Friday night was wonderful. We talked and we dug into God's word together. I am not here proclaiming that I have all the answers. <laughs> but here's the thing. I don't think that Jesus is implying that every authority of every teacher, without exception, should always be under scrutiny. We should have discernment. But the pastor or the teacher that God sends is not always 100% under judgment of the people. That's my point. Jesus focuses instead here on the authority of every religious leader or teacher. He, he focuses on the fruit of their ministry. He's saying focus on the fruit of their ministry, focus on the fruit of their life, of those who claim to be prophets of God, rather than condemning and scrutinizing all the preachers and teachers each and every day. I think Jesus is 
really more what he's saying is he's pointing to a greater need to find confidence and trust to have faith in the word being taught. Amen? What is the fruit here that we're supposed to look at? We're supposed to look at the lives of the people who claim to be teachers, the men who claim, I am a prophet of God. Well, you can see the outcome of their lives. Are they godly men? But you can also more you can also look at the words that they speak, the teaching that they proclaim. Is there any what in other words, what type of authority is there? Is the authority of the words of God or is the authority of the words of man? Part of what Jesus is pointing out here. He begins in verse 16 with the evidence here of the false teachers. You will recognize them by their fruits. What are the fruits? Fruits would be the teaching. Is the teaching godly or is the teaching heresy? The fruits would be the character of the person. Is the character respectable? Is the character flawed? Is the character godly? Looking at the life of that person, is the life a life of Christ and of eternal joy? Or is it a life of corruption? The fruits are going to be evidence. Now look here in verse 16 as well. Look at what else he says. And this is an obvious absurdity that Jesus uses. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Or figs from thistles? I mean, that's absurd language. Where do grapes come from? Grapevines, right? Where do figs come from? Fig trees. You're not going to find grapes from a thorn bush. You're not going to find figs on a thistle bush. And Jesus is making an absurd analogy here. It's an obvious absurdity. You're not going to pick the grapes, the fruit of the kingdom, from anywhere else but where it belongs. I am the vine. Here's where the grapes come from, right? Notice how Jesus shows that the fruits will be recognized from their source. So if a true prophet of God bears the fruit of God, what does it look like? The fruit that Jesus means here in verse 16 is the fruit that comes from the teaching of the prophet or the teacher. The words that they're saying, the lessons that they're reflecting here. While one could also witness the life of the teacher and the preacher, uh, Jesus, I think, in this passage is more focused on recognizing the outcome of the teaching of these men, a reflection of who they are. What are they teaching? That tells you what their source is. And so prophets of the Old Testament, let's compare these, uh, the Old Testament prophets to these false teachers here or the godly teachers. In order to understand what a true prophet is, the Old Testament tells us that prophets of old had a special encounter with God. And as a result, they received a message directly from him. We see this in Numbers chapter 22 about uh, the prophet Balaam. He had, a, he had a very important message to give directly from God. We see in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 14, the prophet Micaiah, um, here's what he says. He says, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. That's 1 Kings 22.4. I'm sorry, 22.14. So it's important to recall that the message of the Old Testament prophet is the message of God. Whatever the Old Testament prophet proclaimed was never his own message. It wasn't his words. It was what God gave through the prophets. 
So more closely, let's think about it here as well. We have to realize that the era of the Old Testament prophets actually ceased with the prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They were the last of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist, you could argue, was a great prophet, but what was his calling? He wasn't prophesying a new word. He was called by God to prepare the people for the Christ's arrival. Much different. But even Jesus in Matthew eleven eleven says that he was the greatest of all. The Talmud actually illustrates. This is the uh, uh, the Talmud is a teaching. It's a, it's a book of a Jewish religious thought. The Talmud illustrates the opinion that the prophecy of old had actually ceased. Here's what it says. When Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the latter prophets, were dead, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. That's what the Talmud says. And the historian Josephus is also known to have said this. The prophets have no true successor. So even the old Jewish tradition recognizes that when the Old Testament prophets ceased, the era of prophecy ceased. So what does the fruit of the true prophet look like now in contrast to the bad fruit of the false prophet? I think Deuteronomy chapter 18 helps us. If you want to flip over there, Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. And again, this is the law of Moses here. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Notice that? That would be a false prophet. If you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. You see that? So here's an example of how if someone says something that does not come true, the Lord has not spoken it. He's been presumptuous in his words. But I think we can also see a clear answer to which type of prophet is a true prophet of God. When we look at Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, these are the words of Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So like Moses, who do we know in scripture that has been connected to and and saying this is like Moses? Jesus himself is, is, Moses was a, a He was a foreshadowing of Christ to come. He was called by God for a specific message and a specific mission. So a bad prophet, a false prophet, and this is according to Jesus, is one whose words are not from God. That's it. So these words that do not acknowledge Christ, who do not point to the coming of Christ, That's what they said in the Old Testament. If the words don't point to the coming Messiah, that's not from God. Of course, now Jesus has now come. We now live on the other side of history. 
So now when we see a, a false teacher who does not acknowledge Christ as the true word of God, that's a false prophet, a false teacher. If they don't point to Christ alone for salvation, that's a false message. And Jesus is making it very clear at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. I have nothing to do with this. Let's turn back here to Matthew chapter 7. Let's compare what Jesus says here in verse 16 about false fruit. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. What is Jesus saying here? I think there's an interesting connection to the words that Jesus uses here. He's using the imagery of a garden. He's using the imagery of fruit. Does that sound familiar to you in Scripture? Let's look here to Genesis chapter 3. Flip over, if you want to, flip over to Genesis chapter 3, or I can read it for you. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. This is actually, I want to read the curse of Adam. If you read the latter half of Genesis chapter 3, you're going to see uh, the curse of the serpent and then the curse of the, of the woman. But I want to focus on the curse of Adam because Adam is the most responsible here. Men, <clears throat> you hearing me? Okay, there you go. Thank you, Joe. God gives this final curse to Adam for a reason. Listen to what he has to say, beginning of verse 17. And to Adam he said... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Look here at verse 18. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. What was the fruit that Jesus compares the false prophets to? Right? What does he say here in verse 16? You will recognize them by your fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? I don't think that's a coincidence. I can see a clear connection here. Jesus is pointing back to the original curse of the garden. A false prophet, a false teacher, is carrying the same ministry of the serpent that resulted in the curse of thorns and thistles. You see what we've got going on here? The curse of Adam produces thorns and thistles. And could it be that Jesus is using intentional imagery to connect the damaged fruit of the false prophets with the damaged fruit of Adam's curse and his labor? I think so. You see that? Everything that Adam produces on his own is no more than thorns and thistles. And so all of the messages that false prophets bring of their own labor is nothing more than thorns and thistles. You see the connection here? So why do we want to grab that? In other words, the false prophets are really proclaiming the gospel of the curse and following the curse that God gives over Adam because of Satan. Grapes from thorn bushes and figs from thistles. <laughs> this may be, a, a, this, 
this could have been a common proverb of the day, right? That implied that which is obvious, right? If you have grapes that are stuck on thorn bushes, are you going to mistake that thorn bush for a grapevine? That'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Or if, if somebody took figs and put them on a thorn bush instead of a tree, that would be a weird thing. For somebody to say, oh, that's a real fig tree because there's figs on it. No, it's not. Look at the source of the fruit. Christ is confirming here in his statement that no man can be deceived by false prophets unless he is willingly blind to the gospel. I want to let that settle. Because it would be so obvious that the fruit of the message that these false prophets are bringing are clearly not true. Because if a false prophet says, oh, look at the, look at the grapes that are on that thorn bush, that would be an absurdity to believe that that was a real grapevine. The only way that anybody would believe that grapes stuck onto a grapevine makes that a grapevine would be somebody who willingly wants to believe lies or willingly will be deceived. Would you agree? And I think Jesus here is making a very clear point. Remember, all throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus minces no words. He's very clear in what he's saying. Any plant that does not produce the fruit that it is designed to produce is a plant that is bad and should be avoided and destroyed. Now let's look here at verses 17 through 19 again. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown where? Into the fire. How do we understand this? Again, remember last week and several weeks before, one of the great ways in Bible study to understand a passage in the Gospels is to perhaps compare it to a parallel passage in another Gospel. Luke chapter 6, if you can flip over there, if you wish, or take notes, whatever you wish. Same teaching here in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43. You know what? Pages turning in a Bible just warms a pastor's heart. That's a wonderful thing. Verse 43 in Luke chapter 6. These are the words of Jesus again. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now let's look here at what Jesus is saying. Verse 45 of Luke 6 helps us more clearly see what Jesus means here by what is a false or bad fruit, which is clearly also the false or bad prophet. Verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What is Jesus saying here very clearly? False teachers, false prophets will speak evil words that are corrupted and heretical and damaging, but it comes from an evil heart. 
the source of the teaching is corrupt. So therefore, the teaching itself is worthless. Now, the thing is, the teaching of a false prophet is not going to withstand scrutiny, especially scrutiny under the divine light of Scripture. All false teachers will have an incomplete, a distorted, or a perverted view of who Christ is. And so unless the people of God understand what the true fruit is, they're going to be deceived into the distortion, the incomplete message, or the perversion of the false prophet teaching. So this is important here. Jesus makes it clear the tree or the plant or the vine that produces bad fruit is at its core rotten. It is only worth the fire. Just throw it in the burn pile, right? Anybody here burn brush over the winter? Yeah, it's a good thing to do. Burn the brush. Get rid of it. Matthew 7, verse 19. Burned in the fire. False prophets, their false followers as well, do not receive the love of the truth of salvation, and they're all going to be cast aside in the final judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 helps us see this. If you want to flip over there, please do. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Here's what the Word of God says. This is the words of Paul. Talking about the lawless one. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Notice there in verses 9 and 10, the ones who refuse to love the truth will be deceived by the lawless one. Then in verses 11 and 12, therefore God sends them, talking about the ones who are listening to the lawless one, the false prophet. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God in his perfect sovereignty will actually send a delusion upon those who would rather listen to false teaching than to listen to the loving truth of Christ. So what is Jesus telling us here? What is the prophet, or the, the apostle Paul telling us here is that our intent in our hearts as students, disciples of Christ, will also reflect what we want to hear. If we wish for our ears to be tickled, if we wish the easy path, then that's what God will allow us to hear. Yet if our desire, our genuine desire is humble and broken and craving after the truth of the love of Christ, then God will grant us that gift of truth. You see the deal here? So we could argue that, that those who follow a false prophet are not at fault because the false prophet deceives. I don't see that in Scripture. 
Yes, the false prophet may deceive, but guess what? The followers followed. Amen? So it's imperative here for us to see that Jesus intends for the citizens of his kingdom to be genuine followers of the truth. So in Matthew 7, verses 19 and 20, let's look back there. Let's close out with this. Verses, uh, chapter 7, verse 19, 20, the idea of being thrown into the fire. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And what are the fruits? Their words, what they're teaching, which also reflects who they are, their character, what their motives are. The words of Jesus here are never more important. We can recognize, we can recognize, I want to emphasize that, we can recognize both the good fruit of God's word and the bad fruit of the false prophets. It is possible to see. And so because of that, we are responsible to this. We're going to be responsible to either suffer in punishment or we're going to be responsible to enjoy divine reward. You see the point here? You can't say the devil made me do it or that false teacher deceived me. Jesus makes it clear. The love of the gospel is open for all to see. If you follow a false prophet, it's because that's what you wanted. So let's close out our time here this morning and let's remember that the original curse of Adam and Eve occurred and the Garden of Eden was lost because Adam and Eve willingly listened to the serpent. Not just Eve, Adam and Eve. Jesus is making an important point here at the end of Matthew chapter 7 that the bad fruit that comes from the fall of the garden back in Eden actually continues to influence our fallen world now. It's still here. Let's not forget that. But the bad fruit, the bad serpent, the false prophet, the spirit of all of this of Satan, it's all together. A false prophet is teaching in the spirit of the serpent. It's still here. It never went away. And it's constantly on the prowl. So because far too often the citizens of the kingdom of heaven will fall back into the clutches of the serpent's lies. What is Jesus warning about here in Matthew chapter 7? You are my children. You are my citizens. You are, you are part of the kingdom of heaven. Do not fall away because the serpent has deceived you again. This eternal battle of the Garden of Eden and the curse that came from it is at odds with the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. There's a battle going on. You've got the fall that came out of the Garden of Eden in stark contrast to the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. Both of them are at war. And Jesus wants to protect us, his faithful, from the punishment that awaits the devil and his angels being cast into the fire. That's what he says here in verse 19. So just remember this, folks. Just because a man of God is eloquent, and just because a man of God is charming, does not mean that the words of his mouth are from God. Let's remember that. And that even means me. 
If I say anything from this pulpit that you say, Bryant, that doesn't, list, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't line up with Scripture. I am not so above myself that I can't take correction and say, yeah, you're right. Let's look at the truth here, correct? We're responsible to know the difference between the sweet fruit, the good fruit of Christ, and that bad and rotten fruit of the serpent. We're we're responsible to see the difference. And so the truth that Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians is the truth of salvation in Christ alone. If we want to hear the truth of Christ and the salvation that he offers, we will listen to it. If we don't, we're going to follow the charlatans. We're going to follow the lawless ones. So any charlatan who claims that there are any other actions necessary for salvation outside of Christ is one who is denying Christ. And this is a false prophet and is leading anyone who listens down a dangerous path of destruction, that broad and easy path. Remember Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14? The path of truth is narrow and difficult. The narrow gate is tiny, but even the path that follows the opening of the gate itself is narrow and difficult. The path of destruction is that wide open gate that leads to an even wider open path of destruction. And so listen to the true shepherd here. Let's listen to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life, is warning us, do not allow false teachers to give you bad fruits. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus speaks of here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is here to take back what was given away to the devil in the Garden of Eden. That's what the kingdom of heaven is here for, is to take back what we willingly gave up, that's what the gospel is. So let's all protect this treasure. Let's protect this kingdom of heaven. Let's protect it from the harmful intruders and the pests that would come in, just like you would your garden at home. You want to protect your garden, the fruits of your labor, from the intruders and the pests. Let's do the same thing. Amen? It means we guard our hearts. We guard our minds. We guard our salvation. And we don't let it go. Amen? Amen. Please, please come. Let's close in prayer. Dear Father God, we, we thank you for your word. And today, dear God, you have allowed us to come into your presence through singing and praising of song and to listen to the words of your son, Jesus Christ, in Matthew's gospel. And oh, dear God, we have tasted just a glimpse of heaven. And oh, how sweet. And oh, how precious it is. And dear God, I pray that you would forgive us every time that we take that for granted. I pray, dear God, that you would guard our thoughts and guard our emotions and guard our very being whenever false teachers come. Whether that comes 
through somebody who claims to be a profound prophet and teaching from a pulpit, or whether that comes from the subtle messages of our secular world, dear God, Satan and the serpent is still at work deceiving your people. Dear God, I pray for your mercy. I pray for your love, your protection. I pray for your strength for each and every one in this room who claims correctly the name of Christ. Those whom you have forgiven and made new in the blood of Christ are precious to you. And I know, God, you will protect all of us. But God, give us your strength. Give us your wisdom to protect this kingdom that you're establishing on earth. The kingdom of heaven is now at hand, according to the Gospels. Jesus proclaimed it. And we're privileged to be a part. And as this kingdom is not yet fulfilled, as this kingdom is not yet fully complete, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to carry out the responsibility you've given us. Lord, this time is for you. And as we sing one last song, I pray that your love would just be in this room. I pray, God, that you would just let us know that there's nothing that can harm us. Nothing's going to take away your kingdom because, dear God, you are sovereign. And your son paid it all. Lord, this time is for you. Speak to us. Welcome us into your embrace. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you. 